To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. Have you ever noticed the types of fights that can happen among families at funerals and how often it's focused on frustration directed at one person? Have you ever noticed one particular person at work or in the family becoming the most frequent object of sarcastic jokes and eye rolls? Or have you ever been that person that's being beaten up? Kevin, a patient who worked in IT, reported to me in session that he was stressed out by the group he's working with on a project. No one was telling him this directly, but he felt like the other members of the team didn't like him or were even hostile to him. As far as he could see, he was performing and contributing equally to everyone else. But the group still seemed more likely to complain or roll their eyes about him if he made a mistake. Whereas when Jeanette or James next to him made errors, their errors were overlooked or seen with soft eyes. When there was a complaint from the business department next door, his colleague, Dave Z, assumed Kevin was to blame right away when he actually had nothing to do with it. This seemed to be happening over and over again. He could see the way people looked at each other with knowing glances in a way that left him out or left him feeling like they were talking about him. He knew, and I knew as a psychologist, that Kevin wasn't the paranoid type. So let's rule that out. I will say that I remember him as a nice and likable and competent guy by all standards. But Kevin clearly knew he was feeling shut out by this group. The stress from his work environment made him feel terrible and it was bleeding into his home life. He dreaded going to work and wished he could get out of this group. Upon further questioning, it was clear to me that Kevin was this group's scapegoat. We'll get back to what he did about it after I give some background on what scapegoating is. Human groups have been studied extensively, and groups have a life of their own. A group of five people has five individual people in it, But the group as a whole is also its own entity and its own separate animal, so to speak. My father came to the United States as a refugee from Hungary when he was just 16 years old. My mother first came to the United States from Brazil as an exchange student at the age of 16 and then came to stay in the United States at the age of 18. People ask me, where did they meet? Of course, the answer is New York City. Based on my study of group and individual psychology and of my life experiences of growing up with international parents, I always say that people are people wherever you go in the world. If you throw a group of people together from any given part of the world, that group of humans will probably behave in similar ways. Someone in the group will emerge as the leader, or another person, they'll emerge as the funny one in the group. 
no matter which culture that group is from. One of my mentors in graduate school, the late Clay Alderfer, was a great contributor to the body of work and the study of human groups. At a prior point in my life, as an undergrad at Duke, I was a pre-law student. My maternal side, the Brazilian side, is a family of lawyers and politicians, and I was following the path of my family, as many of us do. The summer after my sophomore year, when I was living in Washington, D.C. for a law internship, I joined the D.C. Public Library and randomly picked up a book about Abraham Maslow. Maslow, many of us remember, is the humanistic psychologist who came up with the hierarchy of needs, physiological needs at the bottom, then safety, then love and belonging, then esteem, then self-actualization. It wasn't so much his hierarchy of needs that inspired me about Maslow, but it was that Maslow was one of the first psychologists to look at what is great about humans. Previously, psychology had focused on the mental illness and what went wrong with human beings. Maslow studied exceptional human beings and their peak experiences and what made us great. He himself was initially inspired by a vision he had of using psychology to bring peace to a table of leaders at the United Nations. He was the beginning of the positive psychology movement. I was inspired. I announced to my mom that I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a psychologist. This was unheard of on her side of the family. And her response was, if you want to be a psychologist, that means you need to see a psychologist. And that also means you can't have your grandfather the judge's ring. My mom and I, we worked it out. And I'm delighted with my decision and with the privilege to do the work that I do in my field. So Clay Alderfer, the director of the doctoral program in psychology that I entered at Rutgers, years before, he was a key scientist to continue the body of work that Abraham Maslow had started. Clay built on Maslow's work on the hierarchy of needs. He refined that hierarchy into not five, but three needs that we have as humans, which are existence, relatedness, and growth. Existence, that has to do with our basic material needs. Relatedness, that's our desire to have important and meaningful interpersonal relationships. And lastly, our growth needs, our inner desire for personal development, and self-actualization. Later in his life, Clay extensively studied human groups, and that's what we're talking about today. Clay and others, through their study of groups, confirmed over and over again that groups do have a life of their own. What we're talking about in this episode today is just one phenomenon that's often seen in human groups, the scapegoat. Whether it's a church rectory, a group of social workers, a family, or a corporate environment, it's a rare group that, when under stress, won't find a scapegoat. What is a scapegoat? First, let me tell you about the origin of the word scapegoat and where this word comes from. Scapegoating was practiced by the early Hebrew tribes and is discussed in the book of Leviticus. The Hebrews would symbolically put their sins onto a goat 
and then drive the goat over a cliff. So they were symbolically putting the parts of themselves that they didn't like, that they felt guilty about, that they wanted to cut off onto the goat, and then they would drive it out forever. We do the same thing in groups of humans when we scapegoat. It's been studied and found that groups have an unconscious life of their own. Chances are that any given group, within that group, each individual is feeling their own stress about life. This one's stressed about their marriage. That one is stressed about their child. This one's afraid he'll lose his job. That one feels unappreciated. This one's overwhelmed with no free time. What happens next? is that each of these people in the group, instead of looking inwards to what's truly causing their stress, they unconsciously decide, someone is responsible for my stress. The group looks around and decides who that someone is, and without words, but with a known agreement, they choose the scapegoat. The group then unleashes all their stress onto that one person in direct and in indirect ways, and they start to drive that person crazy. They're harsher on them. They blame them more than anyone for when things go wrong, and they behave in such a way that they eventually drive that person out of the group or drive them crazy. This is what happened to Kevin, the IT guy, in the example. The problem is, when a scapegoat is successfully driven out, the group is still left with their own stress. So what do they do next? They choose another scapegoat. Who is chosen to be the scapegoat? Scapegoat literature, including work done by Leroy Wells Jr., talks about people's valency or tendency to become the scapegoat. The scapegoat is often found to be one of two leaders in a group. There's the leader leader, which is the obvious leader of the group, And then there's the leader of the telling of the unpleasant things. This applied to Kevin's case. I asked him if he was being the truth teller about the unpleasant things that were going wrong at work. And he lit up and said, yes, I don't get it, but no one's saying anything about what's going wrong. So I'm the only one who speaks up and tells the truth. Someone has to do it and I'm the only one. So here's how it goes. Everyone in the group knows the unpleasant things that are happening or going wrong. Everyone in the group wishes someone would say it, but they won't say it. When someone opens their mouth and says it, that gives emotional relief to the group. This is a phenomenon of group dynamics. Oh, thank goodness someone said it. But the catch is, the one who frequently expresses these unpleasant things is also likely to be chosen as the scapegoat. The group then begins their unconscious mission to unleash all of their life stress onto this person and start to subtly and not so subtly drive this person crazy and out. More characteristics of those who's chosen as the scapegoat include the scapegoat is often perceived to be a strong person. Weak and crying wouldn't work for this person to receive what the group is about to unleash on them. And lastly, the scapegoat is often different in some way, whether they're the favorite of the boss or a different color skin or a different gender than the majority or even smarter than the rest. 
just different than the general makeup of the rest of the group. This makes them more of a candidate. So all of the above can make someone have more of a valency to be chosen as the scapegoat. That doesn't mean they have to have all of these qualities, but one could be enough. In a moment, I'm going to tell you what you can do if you find yourself in a group with a scapegoat and if you want to help them get out of it. Case number two, the funeral. The patient describes how her sister Susie, who has no filter, got everyone upset at the funeral. When dad died, they couldn't believe that with his five children, he didn't leave a will. Their estranged cousin, who they hadn't seen in 10 years, emerged and claimed he had a written copy. And what were they going to do about their brother Bob, who had moved into dad's home after his divorce and claimed that dad told him he could have it? The sister Susie, who everyone was angry with, always had a reason why she was too busy to visit dad in his last year of life when he was housebound. Susie definitely wasn't there for him in the last few months of his life when the family took turns doing more intense care. Now here she was, full of her ideas for how they should conduct the funeral service. When Susie walked into the room, you could feel the tension in the air. The rest of the family would roll their eyes and grit their teeth, and this happened usually when she wasn't looking. There are details about her getting involved with the cookies or about her trying to help and examples of her saying the wrong thing, which eventually led to an explosion of anger and Susie's cut off from the family. Susie wasn't perfect, but the anger she got from the group was too much for the situation. In this case, she was the scapegoat for all the tension the group was feeling during this difficult time. People are stressed at funerals. They're sad to lose a loved one. Chaos and change has been introduced to the family on many different levels as a member of the group has exited. This high degree of emotion and tension is prime breeding ground for a scapegoat. Everyone starts to hate and direct their stress onto one member of the family. And you hear things like, Can you believe she said that? Ugh! So, what do we do with this information about scapegoats? Let's go back to Kevin, the case example of the IT guy. Through our psychotherapy, he realized that he was making himself a primary target to be a scapegoat by always being the negative leader, the bearer of bad news. I asked Kevin to zip his lips when it seemed like just the right time to be the truth teller at work. I told him, it will feel like it's driving you crazy to zip your lips and the group will be looking at you, quietly waiting for you to do your job, do the dirty work and give them relief. But zip your lips and wait. You watch, it will emerge from someone else. It will have to bubble out from somewhere. I remember that it killed him the first time, but he came back amazed that it worked. Not right away, but eventually he spread the wealth, so to speak, of who was the one to bear the bad news, which put him less at risk for then being attacked and softened things for him in the group. Notice that Susie of the funeral was also someone who didn't have a filter. In sum, if you are the scapegoat, Look to see if you're also too much of the teller of bad news for your group. 
and consider zipping your lips and spreading the wealth of who gets to share the negative observations. This doesn't at all mean that difficult things shouldn't be talked about, but in this case, we're talking about spreading it out. If you're the leader of the group and you see scapegoating happening, there is something you can do. It's been shown that having the leader align themselves with the scapegoat helps to pull them out of it. They're in the best position, actually, to help to establish the group behavior. If you're a member of the group and you see the scapegoating happening, right there, you're ahead of the game because you're aware of it. You might have noticed that your anger towards the person is really too much for the situation. Be aware of your own internal stressors, your own stuff, your own anxiety that's going on with your life that's the true cause. It's scary to lend your support to the scapegoat because you might be afraid that the pack of wolves would then attack you. Can you get the leader of the group to help? Another option is to talk about it with a friend in the group and see if together you can step in to assist the scapegoat. It'll be harder for the group to attack three rather than one. In some cases, consider what's the story of the scapegoat that could possibly make them seem annoying to you. If they're doing something to make them the target, why do they behave like this? When someone finds out that I'm a psychologist, they might immediately say, Are you analyzing me? And my answer is, Yes, I am. When I know or what anyone knows, doesn't turn off. But the good news is, being a psychologist has made me more of a compassionate human being. As a psychologist, you'll hear every angle of every story of why people do what they do. Take Susie from the funeral. She had mixed feelings about Dad, because when she told him a few years back that her brother had molested her, Dad said he didn't believe her and he asked her never to speak about it again. He had been a great father in so many ways, but she also felt betrayed and hadn't been able to work that through. This, and the fact that she moved two hours away, is why her visits to her dad dropped off. There's so much more to talk about the topic of scapegoating. It's a tragedy that throughout history, people have been scapegoated for no fault of their own as easy targets for groups to deal with their current stressors. The historical tragedy of torturing and killing witches, the majority of whom were vulnerable older females, is one of many examples. I do want to offer hope that it's possible to have groups without a scapegoat. The leader of the group or family has a special responsibility in creating an environment that won't support scapegoating. I have seen wonderful instances of cooperative groups that were truly supportive of each other, both in front of each other and behind closed doors. I must say that in all of the instances I've personally witnessed, there was a leader of the group who set the right tone. I hope this podcast has been helpful in raising awareness and ideas about the psychological phenomena of scapegoating. Perhaps with a greater understanding of scapegoating, listeners can find a way to remove themselves from being in the scapegoat position 
or notice when they themselves are participating in scapegoating and make a change. This podcast was sponsored by Ponderosa Studios of Lafayette, New Jersey. Ponderosa offers a professional New York experience and sound in a private creative setting, including a comfortable environment for artists to reside while they record. If you enjoyed this podcast of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, please rate it on iTunes, press subscribe, or share it with a friend. Would you like to share your ideas, experience, or comments on the topic of scapegoating? Visit psychologyamerica.com. Thank you.